Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Angela Seifer, Executive Director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which is an organization representing digital inclusion initiatives around the United States. We talk about what digital inclusion work looks like, how the digital divide is being made worse by digital redlining, and what needs to happen at a provider and policy level to change that. Angela, thank you so much for joining me. It's really a pleasure to get to speak with you. Thanks for having me, Nicole. I would love just to start off if you could tell me a little bit about the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and what role your organization plays in addressing the digital divide. Uh, So I'm the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. We've been around a little over six years now. We got started because there wasn't an entity representing digital inclusion programs around the country. And by that, I mean the community-based organizations, the libraries, housing authorities, local governments that are helping folks sign up for discount internet or finding access to a cheaper internet, maybe creating that internet, uh, finding devices or refurbishing devices to make sure those are available, providing digital literacy training and or tech support. Maybe it's public access. The whole idea being that there's folks who don't have access to technology and they need access. And the individuals, organizations that we represent are the ones doing that work on the ground. Um, So your organization uh, does some reporting and offer some resources around digital redlining. Can you tell me a little bit about what digital redlining is? Where do we see it happening and why? Digital redlining is this phenomena where broadband infrastructure hasn't been upgraded in a lower income neighborhood than a higher income neighborhood. So the technology may have started out the same everywhere, but then the investments weren't equitable. The investments focused on the higher income neighborhood, which as you think about it, makes perfect sense because that's where the greatest return is likely to be, uh, which would make sense for that internet service provider, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for our communities because we need to make sure everybody has fast, affordable internet. Now, is that something that we can address legislatively? Um, and can we do so without you know, overhauling lobbying laws, for example? <laughs> It is complicated because in the United States, the broadband ecosystem is such that the internet purchasing internet service is a commodity, right? Mm -hmm. You, this is, this is something you go purchase. It's very lightly regulated. It's not considered a utility. So if we were to make any demands upon the internet service providers in terms of equitably having the internet service be the same speed at the same price everywhere, that's going to require some legislation. It's going to require uh, regulating the internet service providers such that the level we have not, they have not been regulated. Okay, gotcha. Um, And just to stick with the digital redlining bit for one second, do we see this more um, uh, in rural communities and urban communities? Digital redlining, we think of as more of an urban issue, Mm -hmm. but really it's very much connected to the fact that the infrastructure is not available. The infrastructure is often not available in in rural areas because it is expensive to deploy and they wouldn't get the return on investment, which is the same issue with deploying it. Even if that may may or may not be correct, uh, one theory is that they would get the return on investment in that low income urban area, just not as quickly as they would get the return on investment in the higher income area. So it is slightly different than the rural situation, but it is all related to the fact that in the United States, uh, internet service providers, that whole 
um, industry is a commodity. It's something we purchase and it's not a utility. So I want to come back to the policy stuff, uh, but I'd love to talk a little bit about the challenges around broadband adoption as well. Um, What are some of those challenges and where have you seen successful efforts to help communities um, with affordability, digital literacy, or just general awareness that internet services are available to them? There's a prevalent kind of thought that if someone doesn't have access to the internet, it's because that internet is not available to them. the pandemic helped draw attention to the fact that that's that's a myth. We know that there are 36 million U.S. households, according to the sentence census, that do not have a wireline connection into their home, which is DSL, fiber, cable. Uh, of those 36 million, 26 million are in urban areas. Hmm. Only 10 million are in rural areas. So that tells us this is an adoption issue, not an availability issue. And that adoption issue, the barriers to adoption are affordability digital literacy. Those are the two biggest barriers. And oftentimes they are mixed together, right? Because if you're not sure how to use it and you don't have the digital skills, no matter the price point, you're going to be like, that's that's not a good use of my money. Right, right. <laughs> so, so it gets mixed together. The question of does someone understand the value of it also gets mixed with digital literacy because if you're not sure how to use it then you're gonna be like well that's a dumb thing to do like to be on the internet because you don't Mm -hmm. understand what it is yeah right um have you have you seen any communities that have worked well together or or um have you been able to formulate any any sort of resources that help communities uh connect people to the internet So what NDIA does is we're both a place, a peer-to-peer network for those who are doing digital inclusion work to share and to talk to each other and, you know, swap best practices. So we have lots of resources on our website, including a digital inclusion startup manual for those who just want to get started. Uh, and, And but what we also do is the policy work. So we learn from those folks to influence public policy. What we know from the affiliates that do this work and, and so many more is that having, um, Having partners, knowing what's going on in town, figuring out who's providing digital literacy training, who's providing tech support, where can someone get a free device or a cheap device? What's where's the low cost internet, and who? What are those options? Do we need to create a low cost internet? So we're like, so there's all these different pieces of the puzzle, and what we've seen during the pandemic is even more communities are coming together to figure mm-hmm. out who's covering the different pieces, and are there any gaps? Good example is state of Illinois has brought in a nonprofit refurbisher to be in two locations, one outside, one in the Chicago area, and then one in the southern end of the state so that more of their residents will have access to a low cost computer. Okay, awesome. That's great. So coming back to the the policy stuff, you know, um, we have an incoming Biden administration, which means a new head of the FCC. We also have uh, Democrats in control of Congress. So what are you going to be working on in the coming months as it relates relates to Internet equality and inclusion? And how is your work adapting to fit this whole new situation in Washington? We are super excited about the fact that the recent COVID Relief Act included an emergency broadband benefit. So $3.2 billion to cover the cost of internet up to $50 per eligible household. That's something we've never had before. And that is truly exciting. It also tells us that there's it is feels more possible that we'll be able to make some more gains in that same direction. Not only a more permanent broadband benefit, but also funding for the digital literacy and tech support. Who's helping families sign up for this 
broadband subsidy, it's the communities, it's the organizations on the ground. So they need financial support to provide that. And it's not just like, hey, here's how you sign up, but it ends up being, okay, how are you using it? Do you have the right computer? Oh, let's talk about the apps. Oh, do you need to know what Zoom is? Let me explain to you what Zoom is. So it's that it's that guide, essentially. We call it a digital navigator, but it's that person who can just lead you through. So we're seeing um, a lot of activity at the local level. And because of what's happening federally, it, it helps us give hope to our affiliates locally that there will be more support coming soon. Awesome. Well, let's uh, end on a rare hopeful note then. <laughs> Thank you so much, Angela. I really, really appreciate your time and all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Angela Seifer, for joining me and for the work you're doing at NDIA. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.